The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhezomapete on SAFM. Dr. Tutu Tepe, I introduce you to the SAFM audience who I can't see, you can't see, but you know me and I know you. And let's start off, Tutu, I'll call you Tutu. What are you a doctor of? Um, thank you. I mean, thank you for having me here this evening and hi to all the listeners. I am a doctor of philosophy. Um, I've studied history. My PhD is in history and in black studies. Uh, but I've also studied um, gender studies, politics, um, African history, degree in African history. So I was never able to make up my mind and I just kept kept going. <laughs> And where did you get your doctorate? Uh, from Yale University. Yale. And did you enjoy your life there? I did. It was um, an incredible privilege just to get uh, a couple of years to study as an adult, to just be immersed in coursework and take uh, the courses in African studies that when I was in university weren't weren't really available yet. So to get to really embed myself in, in the literature of what I was studying was just such an incredible experience and, and such a privilege. So it was, it was a, yeah, I loved it. You know, this is the 150th, I think I'm right, anniversary of the birth of Charlotte Mahake. Uh, she was the first African woman graduate in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are one of the latest what, what do you feel is the connection between her and you? Oh wow, that's um, that's such a generous uh, continuity to to tie between uh, such generations. She was such an incredible leader in seeing opportunities and expanding opportunities to so many other South Africans uh, of her contemporaries. Uh, her husband ended up in the United States as well because she. Uh, she was creating opportunities for more black South Africans to to study in the United States and to gain the sort of education that was not available in South Africa. You never see education was not available. And the very first parliament of South Africa had a debate about this. And one of the reasons that they said um, for for denying black uh, black people access to higher education was that they came back with the wrong sorts of ideas. And they cited people like uh, the then Charlotte Manye and other black South Africans who were going abroad and coming back with all sorts of uh, what they were calling revolutionary ideas. So I I hope in uh, thinking about this as a sort of genealogy, I hope to also be somebody who expands opportunity, who uh, takes what I've I've learned and takes my experiences uh, incredibly privileged experience of just being immersed in the literature and get to share that with with many more students uh, those who come from a range of uh, backgrounds not just those who are the traditional route of UCT students but uh, to the the growing route of UCT students from a wider range of backgrounds and uh, to other platforms uh, people in South Africa from a range of different backgrounds in and outside the university. Are you uh, teaching at the University of Cape Town now? 
Uh, yes, I'm a lecturer in African Studies, and this semester I'm teaching a wonderful course called uh, African Political Thought, and another called Problematizing the Study of Africa. So that gives a sense of the sort of of courses that we're offering in my department. But we're really working on on offering knowledge about Africa that's produced from the continent and is really taking people's experiences on the continent as the starting point for how we think about and study our own context. Yeah. Now I'm going to ask you a very unfair question, which I shouldn't do as a judge, uh, about <laughs> our constitution. Would you mm. say you can, you can either make me smile and laugh or you can break my heart? That's why it's a unfair question. Would you say it was a sellout as far as the majority population South is concerned? Would you say it was a necessary compromise or would you say it was a breakthrough opening the way for further change? Um, so an area of the Constitution's writing that I've paid a lot of attention to, I wrote my master's on this, was the Women's National Coalition. And something that really blew my mind as I learned more about this coalition was that they launched a campaign where they reached millions of women across the country. They did door-knocking campaigns. They worked through churches, through cultural organizations. They held workshops. But they were really working throughout the country to build a mass movement to figure out what women wanted most out of the new dispensation, what were the non-negotiables. And they got people invested in, in this new political order and made sure that the new political order was as responsive to them as possible. And to me, that's uh, such an incredible model for what uh, our political order should be. I think one incredible strength of our constitution is that it's it doesn't um, it doesn't prevent it doesn't prevent future alternatives. I think we've seen in the sorts of cases that uh, in recent years have come before the courts that people are using the the constitution to really expand their political realities and to challenge a lot of oppression that they experience. So I think that our constitution should not be understood as a fixed document but it's something that I started with this long story of the Women's National Coalition, but I think that sort of mass movement of having our prior, our supreme law be uh, reflective of what people, where people are and where they want to be and their aspirations is something that uh, should be prioritized, that sort of uh, connecting with people across the country. But I think that our constitution as it is, um, is, is an enabling document that can allow us to do uh, incredible things that uh, demand the sort of mass involvement that we saw in the early 90s with organizations like the Women's National Coalition. Did that answer you know, that's an amazing story now, Tutu, because uh, South Africa is the only constitution in the world that has non-sexism as a foundational value. It's mm -hmm. the only constitution in the world that has a, a prohibition on gender-based violence in uh, mm. the freedom clause that says no violence from the state or in private uh, sources. So there are wonderful things in the Constitution, but of course, lived reality is often very, very ugly. Mm. Uh, 
And and what we need to do, this is now the judge speaking maybe uh, uh, in, in a rather lordly way, uh, is, is to ensure that the Constitution can be used to enable people to get the rights that they're entitled to. Can I ask you on, on a kind of related matter, the traditional courts bill, uh, we, we had a very important case before us at, at the court on whether Mrs. Shulabani could be the traditional leader, the horsey of the Beloy community. Uh, and, and we were told customary law says no, only men can inherit. Uh, in fact, we went against that because the community wanted her to be their leader. And we said we believed in living customary law. What are your views on customary law and on the traditional courts bill? I think that it's really, it's really so unfortunate, and unfortunate is the nicest way I can think to phrase it on radio, that our um, that from 2003 onwards, um, our government has taken a the approach it has to uh, legislating and imagining and enforcing customary law. I think it's, uh, historically, we know for a fact that African uh, government systems were democratic, they were responsive, they had checks and balances, and that colonial governments worked to undo so much of this responsiveness that was embedded in the governments and legal systems uh, that were historically rooted in the region. And that our government took so much of the colonial model of customary law as the foundation for how to imagine uh, vernacular governance and a democratic dispensation, I think is, is a gross injustice to, uh, to the 18 million people who live under in traditional council areas and to uh, to everyone in South Africa, it's 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 an offensive uh, approach to thinking about uh, vernacular governance. I think, and uh, the perpetuation of the colonial ideas of um, what's now called the senior traditional leader as the sole um, decider of what happens to people on their own land in their own homes is something that is unfathomable in this day and age. And the court has uh, responded really well to this in uh, in the Maledu and Baleni cases uh, quite recently. That, I'm uh, going to interrupt you now because okay. I was commanded to tell people if they want to phone in 011-714-2006. Phone in with your questions. I'm not sure if you'll have a chance to answer them, but at least I'm doing my duty by offering that that, uh, that possibility. Let me quickly Let me interrupt jump. the judge just to give yeah. opportunity. I will give you an extra 10 minutes on the other side of the news break then to engage the thoughts that you might have that you might not canvas and just to give time for those who wish to participate but because of time probably think they should not. So this conversation can go on until 10 past 8. That's 10 minutes after the news break. I'm not going to say any more. Well, thank you very much. So, uh, two. Let me change the subject completely before we get back to something serious. You were telling me about the joys of living in the center of Cape Town. Can, can you share that with the listeners? What did you mean by that? Uh, sorry, I, I missed you there. The joys of, sorry? Of living in the center of Cape Town. Oh, <laughs> yes, I've recently moved uh, to Cape Town, I'm a, I'm a Joburger, through and through, fifth generation Joburger, but I've uh, moved to Cape Town and I'm, I'm enjoying the mobility of, of walking everywhere. 
um, walking to do my groceries, walking uh, just for fun. It's it's a beautiful city, um, as everyone knows, uh, and it's fun to to be new in it and get to explore it. Yeah. You know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you couldn't do that in Cape Town. But it is an example of a transformation of an inner city. Uh, like, you know, I've, I've lived in London with experiences like that, in New York, in San Francisco. Uh, and, and it shows we can do it. And, and I'm sure we can do it in Johannesburg as well. You know, we, we've won so many freedoms, but we haven't won the freedom to walk freely on our streets. And we do far too much just going by motorcars from one place to another. Uh, let me ask you something about, you were telling us a little bit about what you convey to the students at, at UCT now. Do you feel that being a young black woman uh, enables you to bring something special to bear in teaching this thing to, to people today? I think uh, as a principal, representation is important. I think that uh, it's important that young people see people who look like them uh, at the front of their classrooms uh, at all levels of leadership across the country. But in terms of my scholarship, I think that it's about the sorts of insights that uh, my positionality offers me in the work that I do. Uh, my PhD, for example, was looking at uh, freehold, uh, black people's freehold land ownership in Alexandra Township. Um, my family were landowners in Alexandra from around the 1910s up until uh, the forced removals in the 1960s. But um, apart from this personal connection, it's, uh, I was able to make connections with people during my interviews and really enrich the research process through uh, quite intimate connections with people who who lived in Alexandria, who grew up there. I had points of reference from uh, stories that I grew up hearing that allowed me to make connections quite easily in the archives. And I think those sorts of experiences, so it's not just the fact that I'm black and I'm a woman and I'm young, but it's how these um, experiences, how my life experiences have allowed me to interpret information to, um, to produce different types of knowledges and have existed before and to, um, I'm trying to avoid the phrase, I decolonize uh, <laughs> knowledge systems because I think it's quite overused right now, but to start to dismantle some of the um, assumptions about African people and uh, the way that we have lived and our histories to make them really uh, representative of people's experiences and to show the different, the extraordinary diversity that um, is encompassed in the phrase black people. And even in the, my case study of Alexandra, the extraordinary diversity amongst landowners who, uh, who are based there. So I think that's the value really of bringing um, as many different people into academia as possible is that we all provide new and different ways of understanding, um, understanding work that may have already been done before and in many cases work that hasn't yet been done. You know what I find uh, to, to very exciting about your approach? It's not just bringing in new heroes and dealing with events. It, it's the way people live and, and the culture and the interactions mm -hmm. and the style of life. Uh, and you're doing more than just restoring facts and events and, and data. 
Uh, it's restoring humanity that was deprived in, in so many different ways. So, so you become you become almost an artist of history, uh, a shaper of, of, of imagination uh, of people and how they lived and what it was like. Um, mm -hmm. So do you find, do you think that being a woman uh, gives you uh, your experience of living as a woman and growing up as a black woman uh, gives you any insights that are particularly relevant or, or valuable? Absolutely. I think that all of our identities shape how we understand the world, how we make sense of it, and how we communicate that to other people. So absolutely, being a woman shapes how I, when I'm in the archive and I'm reading uh, somebody's experience, the way that I've experienced the world um, is at is always present in how I'm making sense of of the world that other people lived in as well. So I think that as historians, we have fidelity to the facts that are in front of us, and you you construct knowledge based off of the evidence that you have. But how we interpret that evidence is always coloured by uh, by our own worldview, our own ideologies, and our own world experiences, experiences of life. I'm reminded to say uh, 011-714-2006. We're going to get a little extension of time after the news as well for that. And then WhatsApp voice notes to 0614-104-107. I'll repeat that. 0614-104-107. For your voice notes. Uh, you were in the States. When did you return from the States, uh, Tutu? Hello, Tutu? Uh, hi, can you hear me? I, I arrived uh, in 2018. Uh, so you, you've been back a little while now. Were you in touch with the Black Lives Movement at all while you were at New Haven, where Yale is? Yes, it was quite something. I was at UCT for the birth of the Roads Must Fall Movement, and uh, I went to the evening sit-ins um, almost every night and was just in awe of seeing students uh, taking charge of the education they wanted in that way. And my very first semester at Yale, uh, the next Yale movement started, which had very similar sort of student-driven demands for transforming the university to make it, um, to, to dismantle the colonial legacies that uh, continue to shape the way that people experience the classrooms and experience the campus. So it was, it was really quite something to move from a student movement in South Africa to a student movement in the U.S., and both really attacking uh, and trying to deconstruct the patriarchy, the white supremacy, the colonial legacies that that shape these very prestigious institutions. And, that and what was interesting, what was interesting is we fell before Yale fell. You know, the fall <laughs> started uh, with Rhodes Factory in Cape Town. It spread all over the world. We, we became, in that sense, the <laughs> the source of, of international agitation. Now, I believe from King Williamstown, waiting on the line, is Patrick. 
Patrick, I, I don't know about the technology, but I'd love to hear your question. Or I'd love, I think, for you to put your question to Tutu. Uh, I'm, for those who don't know, I'm Albie Sachs. I'm a guest uh, anchor, a, a guest interviewer, uh, standing in for Congreso, who's making tea uh, and enjoying himself while I'm doing the hard work here. And, uh, and I must invite you, Patrick, now to put your question. Hi. Josh. Yes, please. Yes, it is. Can you hear me? I can hear you, Patrick. Fire thank you, thank you very much. Place. I've been holding on for long. Uh, I'm calling from <laughs> King Williamstown. Now, I know your role, what role you played. I even read the book that you wrote in the 90s. Um, I, I, I can't remember now the, the title. I'm very appreciative of the role you played. Yeah, you are one of the likes of Mr. Mandela. But now my question is, I've been... I've been trying to get into the public service. Recently, I applied for a job in the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development. But my experience is that uh, corruption is so rampant in our society that when you enter even in the, in the corridors of public offices of public service, the aura and ambience is one of corruption, and it is repugnant in our society. Now, what can I do as an ordinary person to challenge that because, for example, now I wouldn't be talking to you if the lady then the studio was not kind enough to phone me back. So that is another disadvantage, because those who are at the corruption-feeding trough, they don't care even to participate in debates and talks like this, but they have all the money at their disposal. So I want to know from you, Honorable Judge, can you guys open a forum where we can toll-free talk about corruption to expose this corruption that is um, ravaging our our society. I think that's I a wonderful that. idea. Uh, I don't know what can happen on the technological Pardon? side. Uh, I don't know technologically how that's done, but I think it's so important for people to speak out and use every possible occasion to speak out. Uh, and corruption is at the highest level from the highest people. It's at the lowest level when you're just applying to get a job, and it has to be tackled at all the different levels. Uh, we didn't fight for a corrupt society. Uh, we fought for a free society for free people, where people could get ahead based on, on uh, their wishes, their abilities, their hard work, uh, and, and, their, and their capacity to, to meet up with others. Thank you very much for your question, Patrick. I'm going to go back now to, to Tutu because we've left her waiting, uh, and, and I want to just ask a little bit more of her. Uh, Tutu, uh, you are going to be assisting with the development of the curatorial practices on Constitution Hill. Can you explain to the listeners what's meant by curatorial advisory uh, practices? So there's an extraordinary archive that uh, Albie has been at the center of, of bringing together that brought together personal collections, collections from the National Archives, but a range of different written, uh, recorded, other sorts of sources on the making of the Constitution. So the Curatorial Advice Committee and the idea of curatorial practice is about how to organize these 
extraordinary and extensive documents into into ways that are um, that can resonate with people, communicate them in ways that resonate, that uh, convey the ideas, the principles, the history that uh, surrounded the development of these documents. So it's to bring together, give people a sense of what this history looked like and what was happening at the time and how these decisions came about. The idea that um, you referenced earlier about, is this a document about sellouts or is this um, the answer to all of our problems? As the dichotomy is sometimes phrased, that's not what you said, but that's the dichotomy that's sometimes phrased. And I think the historical contextualization is so important to show that nothing is ever that clean cut, that negotiated settlements did mean that um, there were concessions made and they were non-negotiable, things that absolutely had to make it into the Constitution from m- many people's sides. So we'll be Can I interrupt you? Yes. Uh, when we suggested we were discussing about your playing a leading role uh, and, and we were searching for a word uh, and, and convener sounded too passive, uh, you suggested facilitator. Why didn't you like facilitator? Um, yeah, no, these are, titles are always tricky. Yeah, titles are always tricky. So you felt facilitator was too soft. And, and we came up with the word mobilizer. Mm. You fancy yourself as a mobilizer. Um, I, I hope to be. That's what I. That's what I work towards in uh, in many different work areas. So that's that's what I work towards, and um, mobilizing uh, the the process has already started. It's been going for some years down with a really strong and talented team, and uh, working uh, more intensely now as it comes to closer towards being realized. How to uh, how to bring these uh, exhibitions to the public and to communicate the story of the Constitution, its significance, and how people can leverage it today. Okay, thank you, Tutu, for being uh, a very patient guest with a rather amateurish uh, interviewer. I think it's news time now, and after the news, I think, I believe we can have a little bit more time for questions. On the Viewpoint. We are back. We are still proceeding with the conversation that Justice L.B. Sachs was having at the top of the previous hour with Ms. Tutotipe, who's a lecturer in African Studies at the University of Cape Town, Yale graduate no less, talking about archiving the development of the Constitution. We had been graciously given some extra 10 minutes in the conversation between the two guests. And what I propose is just to play a couple of voice notes that have come through following the conversations of the first hour whereupon I will give Judge Albi and his guest, Ms. Tipe, an opportunity to respond. Could you please ask Albi Sachs if South Africa has worked out the way they envisaged it when they wrote the Constitution? Is he happy with the present South Africa? Has it worked out the way they dreamt that it would, Mike East London? Good evening to you and your guests. Life is first born in thought. When you allied your vision to a deed, and then your deed to a vision to obtain success. Thank you.
from chapter 2. Judge Albi, what I propose is for you to respond to these questions to the extent that you can, finish up your conversation with Miss Tipe, and then you and I will have a bromance at the end to say goodbye to each other. Yes, well, you know, I, I'm asked all the time, is this the South Africa you are fighting for? And I had my answer, yes, this is the South Africa I was fighting for, it's not the society I was fighting for. Uh, and and there, there are two reasons for, for my saying this. Um, partly, I lived in Mozambique after it became independence during my exile. And it was fantastic. People's power, revolution, transformation, change. It was the poor of the cities and the poor of the rural areas getting together with progressive revolutionary intellectuals. Uh, and we felt this was marvelous. We are creating the beautiful new society. But in the end, there was no space for opposition. The opposition went underground. It got caught up in the Cold War. We had bitter, civil, terrible uh, uh, civil war in, in Mozambique. Uh, I lost an arm. I was blown up by a bomb put in my car by South African security agents. Mozambique was full of people without legs blown up by mines. There were millions and millions and millions of refugees fleeing across the borders. There were child soldiers, horrible things. Kids of 11, 12, 13 uh, being given guns and growing up and uh, not learning to play football or to draw or to paint, but to shoot and to kill. Uh, that country was convulsed. Uh, and I'm so grateful we didn't go through that in South Africa. We've got a constitution. The changes that we want here are taking longer than many people hope, but it hasn't been through those terrible convulsions uh, and, and the bitter civil war because we have the constitution, because people can speak their mind, because we have elections, because we have a strong constitutional court that upholds the things that we are fighting for, because we have journalists that, that uh, uh, do marvelous investigations. So we are very free people in South Africa. We're not a safe people, and most of us are not prosperous. But our freedom, for me, is very, very valuable and very meaningful. The other thing that gives me joy and hope is I meet so many young people, like Tutu, who I've been interviewing, who are so composed, so thoughtful, so um, so so rich. In, in, in expression uh, and thought and feeling. And it's not just one or two brilliant individuals. There are many, many people like this. Uh, and, and so I am, in that sense, very pleased. And finally, I'm pleased all the rot is coming out. It's being exposed. It stinks. That's what happens when you expose rot. But it's better that it stinks, that we know about it, that we're taking steps to deal with it, than it's live buried uh, to fester. So, yes, this is the country I was fighting for. It's not the society I was fighting for. Very well. We do have literally 90 seconds, so you probably want to wrap it up very quickly with Ms. Tipe. Tutu, I'm giving you the last few words to to the listeners. Give them, give them a nice message. Oh. Well, I'm going to send a quick message to you. Um, I don't take it lightly at all to be interviewed by someone who's had the sort of impact on the country and on law internationally as you have. So thank you so much for this opportunity. But I think uh, my big take home from your, your comment right now is, is eternal optimism and, and working towards uh, 
towards the future we want is the aspiration. Um, a quick note on my research um, about black land ownership. Uh, black people were buying land in Alexandra up until the 60s. Um, when forced removals were about to start, people were still buying land in hope. And I think that's just such an extraordinary idea that we live in hope and we, and we fight to see that aspiration realized. Thank you, Tutu, and thank you, Angezu. I'm not sure what happens now. You and I say goodbye to each other, and we look forward to the politics of the rule of law, a conversation between Dombizozuk or Gianni Mango, Kaya Sitole, Kato Regan, Albi Sachs, moderated by yours truly, Songezo Mabek, the 25th March 2021. Thanks, Judge.